You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now we're focusing today on the day it is, which is, of course, May Day, the workers' holiday. We're focusing on the virus impact on jobs in the UK, because obviously that is a big focus, I guess, of those who are celebrating the day. Yesterday, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, said the UK has passed the peak of the coronavirus, and he pledged to lay out a comprehensive plan to lift the lockdown. To explain how we can get our economy moving, how we can get our children back to school, back into to childcare, second, and third, how we can travel to work and how we can make life in the workplace safer. Well, the restrictions, of course, have already had a significant impact on the economy, with British Airways this week announcing a 12,000 job cut programme. That's being amplified by two reports out today. The manufacturing trade body Make UK has called on the government to help producers through the slump as manufacturers see a dramatic fall in orders and sales. Meanwhile, the Confederation of British Industry says companies have been hit by a momentous meltdown. Its survey showed half of firms have temporarily laid off some staff with activity expected to drop at unprecedented rates in the months ahead. So all this, of course, brings a big form of problem for those involved with establishing rights and uh, indeed uh, continuation of work for workers. For more on this, we're joined now by Paul Nowak, who's uh, Deputy General Secretary at the Trade Union Congress in London. Uh, Paul, welcome to the programme. Thank you for being with us. First of all, let me pick up on uh, the report I think I'm sure you've seen in the FT suggesting that workers who are on the furlough scheme uh, of the government uh, at the moment could be allowed to work part-time. Yeah, well, I, I think that's really important uh, uh, because what we need to see um, as we move you know, towards some sort of loosening of the lockdown at some stage is as much, much flexibility in that job retention scheme, the so-called furloughing scheme, uh, as possible. We know... As and when people do return to work, we want to sure, ensure absolutely that they're returning to safe workplaces, that are the safe systems of work, and that will mean putting in place 
proper risk assessments. It will mean introducing social distancing. It may mean a phased return to work, so people uh, returning in, in staggered shifts or at different start times. And all of that would suggest that we need that flexibility in the job retention scheme to allow employers to bring people back to work over a period of time rather than cutting the scheme off uh, from, you know, from a set point in time. But Paul, does it not worry that some people may just be too scared to go back whatever was put in place? Just the fact that there's still a virus out there. I'm looking at this poll from the I saying that more than half of Brits would feel unsafe going to work, even once the lockdown is lifted. Well, absolutely. And that, and that is absolutely understandable. This has been an incredibly worrying time for, for unions, for our members, their families uh, and communities. And we have to give people absolute assurances that we're making work uh, as safe as possible. Now, we've been talking to government and to employers about what potential safe return to work would look like, but I think that's why we need to see guarantees from government that before people are asked to go back to work, there are proper risk assessments involving trade unions in every workplace, uh, that, that employers are, uh, are speaking to trade unions and speaking to employee uh, representatives. And the clear thing is that we need to pe- put people's uh, health uh, there. So we, we, we need government to work with uh, unions and employers to give people those assurances and you know it's not just going into work it's traveling into work and feeling you're safe on the bus or the train attending your children to school and knowing that schools are safe environments as well uh, and i can't stress enough the need uh, for government to consult with unions consult with workers and give people those assurances and if they were consulting with you about say something like face coverings uh would you would you say that's something you'd like to see would would the people you represent be happier if they had to go back to work or or travel on public transport to have that kind of security that a a face covering provides you see i'm I'm not a public health expert and i know that the uh, the medical evidence on face coverings is contested but this is I think really two things are important. One is that, uh, that any employer that sends people back to work uh, abides by the government's guidance and that we develop specific guidance sector by sector involving unions uh, and employers. But this is, this is where risk assessments come in because, you know, there will be some environments where face coverings are absolutely uh, essential and you're not going to be able to have a, a, a blanket uh, uh, approach across all different industries, all types of jobs. This is where you've got to sit down, do those proper risk assessments, think about the job, think about the individuals carrying out that job. And, and crucially, what we've got to say to people is we're not going to be um, uh, limiting supplies of PPE based on demand. Uh, we're going to make sure that people have the PPE, the masks, the other protective equipment they need to do the job safely and in a way that assures them. Paul, talk to me about the minimum wage, because you're advocating for a £10 minimum wage. Um, what would you say yep. to people who question the timing around this? It's uh, a time when employers already have high costs, a lot of uncertainty. We've just had a mm-hmm. 6% real terms rise earlier uh, last month, the biggest ever increase we've seen since the minimum wage was increased. Uh, and now we have potentially thousands of jobs that could be lost as a result of, of the current situation. Are, are you not mm-hmm. making things worse for employers? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, the first thing I'd say is that I think what we've seen over the last few weeks is who are really the key workers in our economy. And it's obviously those people working in our national health service and in social care, but it's also the people working in our supermarkets, uh, the people collecting our our rubbish and refuse, the people who are uh, ensuring that people can travel to and from work uh, safely. And we need to recognise those workers. You know, uh, two in five of those key workers, nearly four million people, earn less than £10 an hour. And I don't think that gives them the respect and the recognition uh, they deserve. Now, we are in unprecedented times. 
Uh, you mentioned the furloughing scheme before. The government's effectively paying the wages of 4 million workers. It's never been done before. The point I would make is, is as, we, as we come out of this crisis, we're going to need, need to ensure there is demand in the economy. And that's why I think it is right uh, for government to ensure uh, that workers are paid right and with respect. And that £10 an hour minimum wage, I think, should be their goal as quickly uh, as possible. Now, there will be some employers that they will need to support to get to that position. But as I said before, we're in unprecedented times. The government has had to intervene in the economy in a way it's never done uh, before. I don't think anybody thinks we're going to go back to business as usual uh, when this uh, crisis or first phase of the crisis is over. And I think you so you're not worried about an about. adverse impact to this. If you look at potentially seeing lots of jobs lost, you mentioned supermarkets. They operate on such a thin margin. We're talking about 5%. If you suddenly put all the wage costs up, that really puts them under pressure. Yeah, but I, as I say, I think there's a, there's a role there to, for government to support those employers who may, may struggle uh, initially. But we believe that there will be uh, the need to put money into people's pockets to get the economy uh, moving again. And, 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 you know, we will be fighting hard for every single job, working with employers. And we're doing this in sectors. You mentioned uh, British Airways before. It doesn't matter whether it's in aviation, uh, in distribution centres, uh, in, in department stores in offices, we're working with employers to try and secure every single job that we can and everybody's livelihood. Because, as I said before, securing people's uh, health uh, uh, goes hand-in-hand with securing their jobs and their livelihoods. Paul, let's look a little bit beyond the crisis in a way, because I think it's important Mm -hmm. to step back and say, if we get to a point where things open up again, do you see major changes in the ways in which people work? And what effect is that going to have on, for example, union organizing and it becomes more difficult if people are working from home for example and perhaps the jobs might be less secure when companies get back up and running do you see these problems ahead well well, there there are different issues there aren't there i actually think what this crisis has shown us is that that the need for us to think again about job security and the models of employment that we've got because actually we know that lots of people weren't entitled to example for things like sick pay uh, because they didn't earn enough, or they weren't classed as employees. And I think that that fragmented, low-pay uh, approach to employment is something the politicians right across the spectrum will have to address uh, as we move out of this crisis. Undoubtedly, uh, in the short and medium and potentially long term, there are going to be big changes in the way uh, that people uh, work, whether it is about people doing more uh, work from home, more use of video conferencing, and so on. You know, I- I'm pretty confident, actually, that the unions are flexible enough and responsive enough to reach out to working people however they work. I mean, to give you a, a, a little example, we were due to hold a big organising summit of our unions in July. That summit is now going to be online. Uh, we're already thinking about how we uh, support and uh, organise workers digitally. More and more people joining online. And so my message to people on May Day was, it doesn't matter whether you're working in the gig economy or in an office, whether you're working in a real workplace or a virtual workplace, unions are still relevant to you. Uh, Paul, do you think that the Conservative Party and the government have turned a corner here? I mean, Boris Johnson's had such a personal experience with the NHS in two senses recently. We've had a huge financial response, more than £100 billion. And now the Prime Minister is saying that austerity won't be part of the recovery. This is a very different language to what we've heard from previous Conservative administrations, isn't it? It, it is very different. And there are some aspects of it that I really welcome. I mean, I mentioned before, we've been talking... Uh, to the Department of Business, sector by sector, with employers and with unions, about what safe return to work looks like. 
I think that approach, bringing together people from across industry, is absolutely the right one. And, and my message to the government actually would be that that approach is not just good for a crisis, it's good as we move forward as well. The more that we can build consensus, the more that we can give people confidence um, that, you know, every part of industry is working together, the better. I absolutely think it would be um, a real uh, real worrying step if the government did move towards uh, a return to austerity. That's the last thing the economy will need. We'll need to think about ways of boosting our economy, getting demand back uh, into the economy, and rebuilding our public services, yeah. which have been under so much pressure over the last decade and have been stretched to breaking point during the, this crisis. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And we start with um, the accusation that coronavirus is a great leveller. And there are various things to, to challenge that. One of them being this story. Coronavirus fatalities among black, Asian and minority ethnic groups in the UK are disproportionately high. This is according to a new report. The Institute for Fiscal Studies saying that per capita deaths among black Caribbeans and in English hospitals are three times those of white British people. Other ethnic groups also suffering more fatalities than average, despite the fact that most minority groups are much younger in general than the white British population. The think tanks talks about a prevalence of minority groups in key worker roles, uh, with Indian, Pakistani and black African men far more likely to work in healthcare. And then ONS data separately showing that coronavirus is killing people in the poorest parts of the country at more than twice the rate as elsewhere. So the inequalities, Roger, are stark. Yes, and very interesting. Yesterday we had a letter from NHS England suggesting that uh, medical authorities might even pull out uh, people from uh, black and, and ethnic minority groups from the front line uh, if they felt their health was at risk by, by being in the front line and the fight against the virus, and that would make a huge difference. Meanwhile, food banks, because the fat pandemic has sparked a huge increase in people using those for essential supplies. Groups like the Trussell Trust say they've seen their busiest ever period with 81% more emergency emergency food parcels being given out in the last two weeks of March. Now, research shows households referred to food banks are on average left with just £50 per week after their housing costs. And a coalition of charitable groups is urging the government to do more to help protect people from destitution amid a huge rise in applications for universal credit. And then over in Labour, Keir Starmer reprimanding two of his MPs for taking part in a Zoom conference call which included activists who had been expelled or suspended from the party over alleged anti-Semitism. This is according to a report in the Daily Mail. Starmer's made a big effort since his election as Labour leader to deal with these long-running allegations of anti-Semitism in the party. Two MPs are the former Shadow Home Secretary, Diane Abbott, and Bel Ribeiro Addy, a former Shadow Immigration Minister who was recently a guest on this programme. They took part in this call uh, with these people who uh, I think that is a contravention of the rules that Labour has now signed up to around the uh, anti-Semitism protections that Starmer is bringing in. 
Yeah, it's a very vexed issue. And staying with the Daily Mail, now here's something you perhaps wouldn't expect to find in that newspaper, an attack on Boris Johnson. It comes from the TV presenter Piers Morgan. Now he's got an opinion piece that savages the PM. And the headline, Boris can boast about his successful coronavirus war all he wants, but Britain's horrendous death toll tells the real shameful story. And Piers goes on, going full Julie Andrews, Boris assured us that though it's been like coming through some huge alpine tunnel, we'll soon be seeing sunlight and pastures again. The cold hard truth, Piers says, is that Boris Johnson didn't care enough about this virus when it really mattered, and that's made Britain one of the country's, the world's worst coronavirus death traps. And he finally says for him to now claim some kind of success is a woeful delusion. The stats don't lie, especially when the stats are corpses. Mm, stark language there. Plenty of un-Ofcom friendly language as well. So you have to go and dig out the piece. Stuff we just couldn't simply repeat. Now, we are marking International Labour Day with a look at how the coronavirus is impacting employment and workers' rights. For more, let's get into this with Guy Ryder, Director General at the International Labour Organisation. Guy, good to have you. Uh, first of all, break this down for us. What sort of workers are we seeing that are being worst hit by this pandemic? But I think um, in terms of, of sectors, we know there are some sectors which are really suffering very, very badly. Retail and wholesale, food and accommodation, uh, manufacturing, administration and business services. Uh, if you look at it regionally, it's pretty much across the world. Uh, there is a pretty broad uh, and even spread of uh, impact on employment. But what we're pointing to um, on, on May Day this week uh, is the impact on those who are really the most vulnerable in the world of work. And there you have to look to the informal economy of the world. Um, sometimes it's easy to forget that six out of ten people make their living in conditions of informality, you know, without the protection of social security, without the protection of labor laws. Uh, and those people are really on the sharp edge uh, of this pandemic. Um, just to give you our headline figure, we think that 1.6 billion, that's with a B, informal workers in the world in the first month uh, of, of the pandemic have had a, 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 their, their livelihoods threatened with an average fall in incomes of 60%. That goes up to over 80%, for example, in Africa. A dramatic situation. It's obviously a ghastly situation for an awful lot of people. But, but just giving us some perspective, you mentioned some numbers there. Is it possible to have an idea of the global job loss scale overall? Yeah, we've done uh, calculations for the second quarter of, of this year, where we think we're going to be throughout this quarter. And the figure, we've, we've basically done this on the basis of the reduction in hours actually worked. Because counting the unemployed one by one in conditions of furlough and technical unemployment really doesn't work. But if you look at the hours um, worked, there is a fall of 10.5% uh, in the second quarter worldwide compared to the last quarter of last year. And that translates into the equivalent, uh, here, here's a number, of 305 million jobs. 305 million jobs down uh, in the second quarter of this year. And to just give you a bit of a comparison there, you know, when we were um, bemoaning, as we rightly did, the loss of jobs in 2008-2009 because of the financial crisis, that number was 22 million. So you can see we're in a different place altogether. 
And I suppose the fundamental question here is who pays for this? Because there are going to be so many companies that can't keep their workers on when they have no income. We were speaking on Bloomberg more widely to Ryanair earlier this morning. They were saying that even after the lockdown is over, they just can't operate because social distancing, well, if, if they're required to, to observe social distancing, because it just isn't possible on things like planes. So there are going to be so many companies that are affected long into the future here. Yeah, this really is the looming big question, isn't it? I, I think, you know, as the pandemic hit, quite rightly, let me say, uh, political leaders um, gave the priority to, to the health uh, issue, to getting the pandemic under control, getting those famous curves down and flattened. And basically, you know, the, the normal worries about deficits and, and public finances were put to one side. I don't criticise that. Uh, I think that was right. But, you know, we're coming to the point as countries are beginning to talk or to act upon lockdown, uh, we are getting to this um, this major policy question of, you know, in the end, who's going to foot the bill for all of this? And what is our new normal going to look like if it's reasonable to talk about a new normal, at least in the interim period until we, you know, we do find a vaccine or, or a way of dealing with the pandemic uh, other than by social distancing? Uh, with all of the uh, implications that has for the world of work. I don't think the answers are there yet. I, I think the answers are going to be possibly the big political question of the uh, of the coming months. Yeah, well, let's pick up on that, because it is, it is about fascinating to look beyond, if you like, the current crisis to what the world will look like. And I take on board, we can't know. But do you think some yeah. of these jobs that are gone will be gone permanently? Could we see, I mean, I suppose being on the optimistic side, mass recruitment once people get a sense yeah. that they can make money again? Well, well, absolutely. You know, when we talk about these horrifying figures, that 305 million I put to you uh, a few minutes ago, I mean, we can bounce back quite quickly. You know, the day a country uh, unlocks, uh, and I'm sitting here in Switzerland, uh, they're unlocking big time on the 11th of May. I mean, these numbers can fall in a very lumpy way, you know, big changes will happen overnight. But there's two questions, I think, to be answered. Firstly, um, are we going to see a high level of mortality of otherwise viable, profitable companies simply because they can't get through uh, the, the pandemic lockdown period? And one thinks of small and medium-sized enterprises without the reserves to get through. I think that's the first question. And governments are right to try to uh, support and uh, sustain those enterprises. And then secondly, the question is, well, look, um, is this new normal uh, going to mean that a number of previous existing jobs will not have their place because we can't work as we used to work? I think we have to be very careful in this debate about a new normal. Um, take the example of teleworking, just to take one obvious example. We've all had the experience of working in ways unfamiliar uh, to us over the last month or so. Uh, and many people are saying, well, this is going to be the way we work uh, in the future. I'm unconvinced by that. Uh, firstly, because, you know, once the pandemic uh, is dealt with one way or another, and it will be, there is nothing, I think, that in imperative that will compel us to work in this teleworking mode. The question is, do we prefer to do it? I think the experience of the pandemic has made us aware of possibilities, of options. I really think it's important, and May Day is a good day to think about the future of work, that we exercise our preferences and don't get sort of railroaded into thinking that the world of work will have to be, by definition, different in the future. There's choice, there's preference, there's policy choices to be made in this. And I think that's what we really need to keep in mind. 
but do you think companies, especially big companies, will embrace that choice and allow employees to, to take advantage of what we've now seen, this certain level of flexibility that can be had? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing, as I'm, I'm sure you're commenting on as well, big companies saying, look, this is going to probably be the way we do things in the future. Uh, there won't be the big centralised office that we all commute to in the morning. Uh, you know, and there are some attractions to that. Um, but if you want my personal opinion, um, I don't want to work teleworking. I don't want to sit in my home as I am doing this morning, uh, not see my colleagues, not be able to interact in normal ways. I think we've been made aware both of the possibilities of teleworking uh, in the last month, but also truly its limitations. It really major limitations to it as well. So again, um, I don't think it would be fair to say post-pandemic, you know, teleworking is a fatality to be imposed upon us. It's a choice that we have to consider. And I think, and I'm trying to be optimistic, and I am optimistic about the, uh, the forward path. You know, there are many possibilities before us. Let's not think that the post-pandemic new normal is something over which we have no choice or control. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.